Welcome to the city. Uh, glad you guys are here on Super Bowl Sunday. You can't say that. Apparently you have to say Big Game Sunday, which just really sounds stupid, right? But as you can tell, today I'm going to be rooting for the Cowboys, right? Because I'm completely delusional. Uh, but Super Bowl is one of those things like with any sport really, or, or hobbies for that matter, it's like, you know, you either really care or you just really don't. Like there's probably a lot of you that could, couldn't care less. Like you, you may not even watch it or maybe you're just looking forward to the food or whatever. Then others, man, you live for this kind of stuff. We're, we're all different in lots of different ways, but I still say, you know, we're more alike than we are different. At the end of the day, we're, we're a lot the same. We go through the same stuff. We have similar experiences. We have, you know, similar uh, highs and lows. We all go through the, th the same things. And for, for a lot of things, we're exactly the same. <clears throat> for example, this uh, thing we're going to talk about today is we're going to be talking about pride and humility. And here's one thing I know about everybody is no one likes to be humiliated. Nobody, period, right? If you like humiliation, you need to be, you know, laying on a couch somewhere, talking to someone with a certificate on their wall, probably, because something's wrong inside. Something's broken, right? Because no one likes to be humiliated. No one likes to be embarrassed. There, there's nothing quite like making a fool of yourself in public. Um, it happens some, you know, to some more than others, but no one enjoys it. We've all had these moments in our lives. That it may have been when you were in elementary school and you probably remember it like it was yesterday, right? Maybe you tooted in class and everybody laughed at you, or maybe you had a booger on your face and nobody told you or whatever. Maybe your pants split when you bent over, uh, wh wh whatever it is, it sticks with you. You, do, you don't quite recover from it because it's traumatic. It's humiliating. And I, I have two of the, the best stories I've ever heard, and I'm going to share them with you. And whatever, it, whatever yours is, see, like mine, I like to fall down in public. I do it a lot. Uh, I've probably done it more than you. I kind of look forward to the future. Getting older, I'll probably have more opportunities to fall down. Um, gives me something to look forward to, right? But whatever yours is, these two top them. One of them, I asked the staff this week, you know, what's your most embarrassing story? And within a minute, somebody responded and then no one else responded because this one topped all of them, right? And, and there's a guy on our staff who, uh, his, his, um, he's 14, he was being a real jerk to his mom and his mom had had enough and turned the punishment over to his brother. And his older brother proceeded to strip him down naked and lock him outside of the house. And they didn't live in the country, right? They had neighbors. So it was kind of a traumatic experience. The best one, though, is, is I heard this story years ago. It's a good friend of mine named Kevin. He's a missionary in Indonesia now. But when he was 16, he went on his very first date. And he didn't have a car. He couldn't drive yet. And so the date took him. They went on this date. And they came back. And they're parked in front of his house just talking. He assures me, you know, that's all they were doing was talking. But it was cold outside, warm in the car. The windows fogged up. And so his dad looks out and sees the windows fogged up and jumps to some conclusions. And so he storms outside and opens the car door and drags him out of the car and spanks him <laughs> in front of the date. I mean, that's not something you get over. You know what I mean? Like it, it changes who you are. <laughs> you never get over something like that. Nobody likes being humiliated. Here's the, here's the funny thing though. If we're being honest, don't we kind of like it when it happens to somebody else? Like, especially maybe somebody you don't care for. 
Or maybe somebody that's just real arrogant, you know, and, and you know, you, you see them get knocked down a few rungs. There's something in us. I don't know what that is. Like something in us that likes it, that sees arrogance and just wants it addressed. You know what I mean? Like that need for justice, that need to kind of see the scales balance. It's in all of us. And in Daniel chapter four, we're in a, a series called Kings and Kingdoms. If you're new here, or if you've missed a few weeks, we're walking through the book of Daniel. We're in chapter four today. We get to see somebody get humiliated in the worst possible way. And if I'm being honest, and maybe you'll agree when we get there, he kind of had it coming. He, he kind of deserved what, what he got. But I think there's a lot here in this story that we can apply to our lives, that we can learn from. And that's what this series really has been all about. As Clayton has been saying each week, he, he believes that we're in the end times, that we're going to see the second coming of Jesus in his lifetime. And I, I tend to agree. A lot of you agree too. We're, we're in the last days. And if that's true, we need to be ready as believers. We need to prepare ourselves. That's why we're, we're studying Daniel verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It, it's not just a historical document, right? It's not a historical book. It's, it's prophetic. It's about what happened, but what is happening now. And it's also about what's going to happen in the future. And there's so much in here that if we would just read and apply, it can give us a perspective on what we're going through, understanding of what we're going through. It can give us hope. It can prepare us for what's coming. We need to know how to survive and how to have our faith survive when we're living in this culture that is completely heating up and, and running from Jesus and overrun with the spirit of Babylon. That's why Clayton said last week, I liked it. I'm going to say it again. He said, we don't just need inspirational words. We don't just need inspirational messages, right? Inspirational messages make us feel good. The scripture calls it what our itching ears want to hear. We want to hear something that feels good. That makes us feel like everything's going to be okay, right? But the problem is the inspired word of God is what we need. And the inspired word of God sometimes makes us feel good, but sometimes it makes us not feel good. Sometimes it challenges us. Sometimes it convicts us. Sometimes it's not easy to hear, easy to read, but it's what we need. God forgive us for relying on memes and the verse of the day and just devotional books to sustain us spiritually. It's not enough. We need a deep understanding of the, the word of God now more than ever. And I personally have been challenged by the series. And as we've gone through stuff with, with my city group, the, the group of friends of mine that are in our group that we, we listen to the messages and go through these questions in our group. It's been just so helpful and eye-opening and so um, life-changing for us. And I know for a lot of you, we've heard similar stories. So we're going to do more of that today through Daniel chapter four. So let me kind of catch you up on where we've been. If you've missed any messages, you got to go back and watch. There's no possible way I can even scratch the surface on all that that's happened. But just to kind of give you a brief rundown, uh, we're in Babylon in the book of Daniel. We have Daniel and his three friends and a bunch of other Jewish people that have been taken captive by Babylon. Babylon just destroyed Judah and took some of the royal family captive. And you have all these Jewish people living in exile in Babylon. And Daniel and his friends have over and over again proven that God is with them and that, that uh, he, his favor is upon him. And Daniel specifically has proven 
to Nebuchadnezzar through a couple different things that God is with him. He interprets some dreams for Nebuchadnezzar and he's now trusted by him. And last week we had the, the famous story, right, of the other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who they're put in the situation to either bow before this 90-foot golden statue of King Nebuchadnezzar to worship it or die by fire. And they put their even if faith on display when they said, you know, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. And they were thrown into the furnace. And you remember the rest, right? The three in the furnace became four somehow. And then the three emerged completely unharmed because God rescued them. And today we get to have a kind of a, I think it's a pretty cool firsthand account from Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's, he's writing in the first person, telling us about another thing that happened to him, another dream that he needs Daniel to interpret for him. So we're going to read again. We're, it's a lot more reading than normal. It's not going to be on the screen, not going to be on the TV. We encourage you, if you have a Bible, get it out. Turn to Daniel 4, maybe your Bible app. The coolest way that, for me is to do the message notes. They're in our app. All the, the scripture is there. And all the points we're going to be making, fill in the blank stuff is there. It's a good way to stay connected and plugged in. If you don't have the app, you can scan that QR code in front of you and it'll take you there. So having said all that, <laughs> let's uh, start reading in, in chapter four, verse one. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. So let me just pause for a second because this is this funny day. We're talking about arrogance and pride and humility and all this stuff. This is a perfect example here. You have Nebuchadnezzar, who remember last week, chapter three, he builds this huge statue, makes people bow to it or die. And now you have him opening a letter to his kingdom, claiming that he rules the entire world, right? It's typical Nebuchadnezzar fashion here. Verse two, he says, I want to tell you uh, all I was sorry. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever. His rule through all generations. So this is a little startling right here, right? Because he's gone from bow to me to now he's acknowledging the one true God. Something's happened. He's kind of pulled a little bit of a 180. In verse four, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. And for all of us that have read the previous chapters, this isn't a surprise, right? This is it's like Groundhog's Day. I don't know why he thought these other guys could help him. They couldn't. At last, Daniel came in before me, told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So here's another spot that's a little bit confusing. He's just praised the one true God and now he's talking about Daniel, a.k.a. Belteshazzar, which is his Babylonian name that he was given. And he's talking about his little G God and the spirit of the holy gods, little G. So he's praising God. Now he's talking about his gods. He seems to be flip-flopping a little bit. We'll get to that more in just a little bit. So he, he tells uh, Daniel the dream. Uh, let me summarize the first half of the dream, then we'll read some of it. Basically, there's a huge tree 
standing tall. It's got leaves and fruit and animals living under its shade. And then a messenger, a holy one from heaven comes and shouts for the tree to be cut down and rip off the branches, scatter the fruit, but leave the the stump there and the roots there. In verse 16, this is the, the holy one of heaven still talking. He says, for seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It's a commanded by the Holy One so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest people. So now Daniel's got the dream and he, God gives him this ability to interpret the dream and it freaks him out a little bit at first because this dream is going to be a little bit of bad news for Nebuchadnezzar, who, if you remember, is a little bit crazy and he likes to murder people. And so he's a little hesitant to tell him, but eventually he does. He tells him, Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be some bad news for you. He tells him that the tree that gets cut down is him. His kingdom is vast and he's tall and standing proud, but all that is coming to an end. In verse 24, here's Daniel's interpretation of the dream. This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord and King. You'll be driven from human society. You'll live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cow and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass, and a lot of theologians think that's actually seven years will pass. You'll live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. So he's telling him here, you're about to be humbled. You're going to completely lose it all. All your power, all your authority, your possessions, even your sanity. Unless you you change your ways. Even in verse 27, he closes with this. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. Then perhaps you will continue to prosper. So he's saying, listen, it doesn't have to be this way. Here's what's coming, but it's not too late for you if you'll just humble yourself now. Look to God. Turn from your sin. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar listened? I don't think so. Verse 28, but all these things did happen to the king. Twelve months later, a full year, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I've built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Pause. So in his defense, it was a pretty amazing city, right? In fact, under his rule, it was probably the most beautiful, even the largest city in the world. And a lot of it did have to do with some, his rule, right? But he's up there kind of soaking it all in, kind of feeling really good about himself. And it's about to cost him. Because verse 31 says, while these words were still in his mouth, A voice called down from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You're no longer ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time, again, seven years, 
will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. It's kind of gross picture there, right? But he's lost it all. He's been completely humbled. God, God gives him this traumatic lesson to teach him that everything that he had didn't come from him. It was about, it was about God and what God had done in his life. And, and it's like God is saying, you think you're hot stuff. Like, what do you think of yourself now that you're on all fours, ripping grass out of the ground with your teeth? And then in verse 34, what happened? After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned. I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. And then down in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true. And here's what it comes down to. And he is able to humble the proud. God is able to humble the proud. So Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson, his reason, his position, his wealth, all the power. Ultimately, they come back to him, but only after what? After he, he looked to heaven and he acknowledged God's sovereignty. He acknowledged the, the higher power. And then it was all restored. He, he learned his lesson. Now, what can we learn from his lesson? I have four quick takeaways and they're very, very, very simple, but something that I think we can all apply to our lives starting right now. And it's this, God hates pride. God hates pride. God hates sin. God's holy, completely without sin. He loves us, hates sin. God hates pride. It stands against everything that he is, everything that he's about, everything that it means to follow him. James uh, says it like this. He, he's quoting a verse from Proverbs in chapter four, verse six. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He stands in opposition to the proud. When if you think about it, if, if you are a part of the, the proud, you're standing in opposition to God. You're saying like Nebuchadnezzar, it's all me. I don't need him. You're placing yourself in opposition to God. I don't know about you, but that seems like a scary place to live. In opposition to the living God. He hates pride. And so, because he hates pride, God will humble those who don't submit to him. He will. He, not he might. He will. It will happen. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. It's part of this cry for justice. We were talking about it earlier how all of us have in us this, this need for things to be made right, right? The wrongs to be righted. For justice, for the scales to, to be balanced. That same thing that was in us that wanted to see Nebuchadnezzar maybe get what was coming to him. God delivered it. And if you and I don't submit to God, humility is coming for us as well. God will humble the proud. 
He will humble those who submit to him. We see it throughout scripture. The people refuse to go God's way. They do their own thing, do their own thing their own way. What happens? Things break. Things go poorly for them. Even with the people of Israel. You remember they were in captivity in Egypt. Moses leads them out. They spent decades going through this vicious cycle of following God, going his way, seeing all the miracles, and then deciding to go their own way. And in their own wisdom, doing their own thing. What happens? It doesn't go well for them. Until what? They humble themselves. They look to God. They do things God's way. Things go well for them. Over and over and over, we see it. It's the way of his kingdom. One day it'll happen, but it'll happen on God's time. We saw with Nebuchadnezzar, it was a full year between the dream and then the, the fulfillment. Nebuchadnezzar had probably moved on. He wasn't thinking about the dream or being humbled or whatever, but it, it happened. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And eventually, every knee is going to bow. Eventually, what is done in the darkness will be dragged out into the light for all to see. It's going to happen. Because it's going to happen, this is also true. It's always better to humble yourself than to be humbled. And we know this, right? It's better to humble ourselves than to be humbled. Being humble is not a, a fun thing. It's not pleasant. And you're probably thinking at this point, right? Good thing I don't have a problem with pride, right? Maybe you're thinking, you know what, my, really my only problem is I'm just too humble, right? That's my biggest weakness is my humility. Let me ask you, do you have a pride problem? Can I answer for you? You do. You do. And if that offends you a little bit, that's probably proof that you do, right? Pride is one of those things that is so easy to spot in someone else obvious. Somebody could walk into a room and you could be just like, ugh, like you could feel it, right? Just that arrogant, whatever. Pride is just, it's easy to see in someone else. It's almost impossible to see in the mirror. You don't see it when it's you. Until when? Until you're humble. Then you see it. Here's the thing about pride too. It's not just arrogance and boastfulness and like I'm better than everyone else and strutting around. It's more than that. It's self-centeredness. It's about me and how I feel and what I think and my version of the truth and what's right and wrong and, and how I've been mistreated or how I've been disrespected. Me. It's all about my, my world revolves around me. That is pride. And we all have it. You want proof? Scroll through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Maybe look at some of your own posts. Uh-oh. You think everyone's hanging on your every word, you know, wants to know what you think about things? You think you're going to convince someone that they're wrong and you're right? You're going to convince someone to support this thing or that thing or this candidate or that candidate or whatever? Selfies. Tell me I'm pretty, you know, we're, we're all guilty to some extent. 
How about this? You ever been offended? You ever gotten bitter? Have you ever had a difficult time admitting that you're wrong or apologizing to someone? Ever had trouble forgiving someone? How about this one? Our own prayerlessness. How slow we are to, to go to God in prayer. We use prayers like this last resort, like a get out of jail free card or something, instead of going to God daily. Like we, we can't live this life without you. We think we can do it on our own. We only need you in case of emergencies, right? What is that? It's pride. It's, it's in our nature. It's how we were born. You know, we were born with a sinful nature from, from birth. We have this. If you have kids, you know, from the very start, it's pretty much all about me, right? And then those of us that are Christians, we've, you know, we have the spirit of God in us now. And we have these two competing sides, our, our sinful nature and our God nature. And they're at war with each other. And our natural tendency is to slide and drift into pride, into self-centeredness. You don't have to try. It happens. You, you do have to try to humble yourself, to stay humble. That takes intentionality. You don't just drift into humility. We have to humble ourselves. And, and really, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, that means we follow Christ. Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. Think about this. He, he was God. Jesus was, was God and man. He wasn't some 50-50 hybrid. He was all God and all man. And this Jesus, this God in a body, God, the God of the universe, the God that created all there is, humbled himself and came to the earth as a human. And even beyond that, it says in Philippians 2, Paul said, took the position of a slave even unto death, he humbled himself all the way to the cross. He who came to, to serve and not to be served. That's our ultimate example of humility. We have to humble ourselves. And, you know, back to James, we just read how God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The next verse, verse seven, he says, so humble yourselves. This is the answer. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. This, that feels really good, right? It takes a turn. <laughs> he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow, deep grief, there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And he says it again, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. He felt the shift there. It took a little serious turn, right? Let there be tears for what you have done. Let, let there be sorrow and grief, gloom. I, I learned a, a term these last couple of weeks as I've been really studying this and it's this. Redemptive shame. 
redemptive shame. You know, shame for Christians is not a good thing. Uh, I've preached a lot of sermons about shame and how we need to, you know, throw it out of our lives. And now we as Christians, we tend to hold on, even though our past has been forgiven, our sins have been forgiven. We hold on to our past and our mistakes and we kind of wear, we drag them around with us through life. And we're just, just bogged down by this shame of, of whatever. It's not a good thing, right? We've been set free from that. Jesus died to pay for all of that. This is not that kind of shame. This is a good kind of shame. Redemptive shame comes as a result of our rebellion and sin before God. It's when our sin is exposed before God and maybe even before other people. And that embarrassment can drive us into the arms of God. That's what we're, we're talking about here. We're talking about let there be tears for what you have done. Think about Adam and Eve after they sinned. You know, they were in this the perfection of Eden. They were walking and talking with God until sin. And sin broke everything. It was broken. And then all of a sudden, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid from God. This is the redemptive shame that Nebuchadnezzar experienced when his pride was exposed and he was, he was shown before the world to be nothing. Nothing without God. And it took some time, but eventually he looked up. He looked to God. He recognized God's sovereignty. And then he was restored. Did you know, um, Jesus, remember God in a body, Jesus experienced shame. He did. Except it wasn't shame for his own pride or his own sin. It was, it was yours. It was mine. He didn't just experience it. He became it. He wore it. He died to pay for it. Hebrews 12, verse two. This is the answer. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy, for the joy, thought we were talking about shame. Jesus endured the shame of the cross. You want to talk about shame, embarrassment, humiliation? As he was stripped naked and almost beaten to death and hung high for everyone to see, king of the Jews, mocking him, all that stuff. He endured the shame of the cross because of joy, joy in glorifying his father and the, the joy of redeeming us, his brothers and sisters, so that we could have a relationship with them. We could have a, a pathway back to God through what Jesus did. We serve a God who 
can turn shame into joy, but it's not some magic trick, right? It's the gospel story, the story of God himself experiencing shame on our behalf and Jesus subjecting himself to the humiliation of the cross. He felt our shame, but he underwent the experience to free us from shame. Invites us into the the, the glory of the, the resurrection, ultimately, grace and forgiveness, grace, grace. We throw that word around a lot. Grace is something we don't deserve and something we don't, we can't possibly earn. It's just freely given to us. That's what he, that's what he did for us. That's what he offers us. Philippians two, we talked about how Jesus humbled himself, right? It goes on to say, so that then God exalted him, gave him the name above all other names, Jesus, so that Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. You may bow now, or you may bow later, but you will bow. Don't make the mistake of bowing when it's too late. If we are truly in the last days, time is running out. I'm not trying to scare you into something. This is the reality. When your time is up, it's up. Where do you stand? What is your relationship with God? Do you have one? Earlier we talked about Nebuchadnezzar kind of flip-flopping between the one true God and his gods or whatever. There's some disagreement between theologians. Was it a real conversion experience or not? We don't really know. Maybe you know what that's all about. You don't really know where you stand. Not knowing is the the worst part. Living with that, that doubt. Do you know him? Have you bowed the knee? Have you committed to follow Jesus? Is there doubt there? You don't have to have doubt. You can, like Nebuchadnezzar, in this moment, Everything was restored to him as soon as he looked up, cried out for help. This can be the story of your redemption too. A simple uh, gesture of looking to heaven. I can't do this on my own. I submit. I need you. I can't have a relationship with God on my own. I can't make it to heaven on my own. I can't be the father or the dad or the mother, or whatever that I need to be on my own. We need him. If you've never made that decision or if you have any kind of uncertainty, you can change that today. Your story can start over. As you put your faith, not in you, not in what you've done, how good you are or whatever, put your faith in Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. He owed us nothing. He gave us everything. He paid it all. He offers us this free gift of grace. Just take it. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be be saved. There's, There's no magic prayer. It's a heart decision that you make. Put your faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross and as he was resurrected, he conquered death and sin once and for all. 
Now we have a way, we have a pathway to God. We have a relationship, a relationship with him here and now. We can spend eternity with him in heaven. Don't waste another second. We had a guy in an earlier service came up to me after and was like, I'm ready, man. I, I'm tired of the, the cycle, doing things my own way, falling on my face. Like I, I'm ready to go God's way. Gave his life to Jesus. What's your story going to be? If you're ready to make that decision, let us know. You can come talk to us about it. Let us know on the app, the connect form. We want to connect you with other believers, get you in a group. So we walk this life together, trying to navigate Babylon, right? This, this world that's running from Jesus, it's, it's hard to keep your faith. That's why we need each other. We've got to stay humble. And, and as I'm closing here, you know, staying humble isn't just about beating yourself up. It's, it's not just making less of myself, it's making more of God. Glorifying Him, right? Lifting Him up. The, the best way to stay humble before God is having a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus. The thing we just talked about, that when you, when you realize where you were, where you are, where, where you're going, what Jesus has done for you, not just making your life a little better, but you're, you've literally, literally gone from death to life, right? when we as human beings can really let it dawn on us what Jesus has done for us, our only response can be humility. That's it. When you're in that moment of God's presence, or, you know, and it's dawning on you, you're reminded of all that he's done for you. It's just a humbling experience. Your response is gratitude, thanksgiving. You know what that's called? That's called worship. It's not just, we're about to sing some songs. That's a form of worship, you know, and we tell you all the time, don't just blah, 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 you know, singing about Jesus dying for us or whatever, uh, mindlessly. Like that should do something to you. If you're really thinking about it, if you're really letting it get into your, your spirit, it changes you. And then you can worship in, in spirit and truth, Right? Like it's, it's real for you, you're, you're humbled in that moment. But it doesn't just stop with the songs as we leave this place. It's about living our lives in light of the gospel day by day. That's what Paul was writing about in Romans 12 when he talked about offering our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Living lifestyles of worship where we're reminding ourselves day by day of what God has done for us. That's how we keep from drifting into self-centeredness and it's all about me. So here's, here's the key. This is the last takeaway. Worship your way to humility. If you're living lifestyle of worship, if you're living in light of the gospel day by day, you're not going to have a problem hum humbling yourself. You're going to keep things in the right priority, in the right order. When we start living that way, that's when we can start looking more and more like Jesus. That's when we can really serve people and love people the way Christ loved us, like that sacrificial love. That's the only way it's going to happen. That's when we can be the parent that we need to be to our kids and be the spouse that we need to be to our spouses. 
That's when we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all those fruits of the Spirit that God promises us as, as believers. That's when we start living in, in that kind of stuff. Like it's added to us as we're walking in light of the cross. Our priorities stay in order. Humble yourselves. God will lift you up in honor. Worship your way to humility. We're about to take the Lord's Supper together. You see the little cups in front of you. That's a, not right the second in a minute, but that's a, a great way to, that's the reason we do this is to remind us of what Jesus did for us so we don't forget. So my prayer for you is that as you do that, God, let, let it sink in. It, it should move you. It should, it should change you. It should soften you. And then keep that rolling as we go out into the world, into this dark, <laughs> hopeless world with running from God, the spirit of Babylon, everywhere we look. That's how we keep our faith strong. That's how we survive. That's how we thrive in Babylon. Would you pray with me? God, be with us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that you loved us so much. You sent Jesus to die for us. God, I pray that we wouldn't forget. I mean, what a terrible thing for us to take for granted. So we don't want to do that anymore, God. We want to live in light of the gospel. We want to live in humility and gratitude and thanksgiving. We want to, to look like Jesus, God, as we walk into this darkness. God, let us be a light. And we know that it starts with you, starts with Jesus and us humbling ourselves in light of the gospel. God, be with us as we worship our way to humility, as we bow the knee, we submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.